Welcome once again to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. I'm pleased today uh, to be having a conversation with Dr. Salim Ali. Salim is Chair of the Department of Geography and Spatial Sciences, Blue and Gold Distinguished Professor of Energy and the Environment at the University of Delaware in the United States. He has lectured and worked with universities in Vermont and was a visiting scholar at Queensland University in Australia. But the truth of matters, more than that, the reason I wanted to speak to Salim today is because of a book he recently authored. The book was titled, Earthly Order and How Natural Laws Define Human Life. The book was published by Oxford University Press and received a lot of very positive reviews. But even more, Salim, donates royalties from this book to promote environmental education, which I think is vital. If we are going to make the world a better place, people need to be informed. And so while I'm not in the business of promoting uh, anyone for commercial gains, this public good seems to me to deserve mention. So Salim, well done with your book. I look forward to reading it. I'm in Oxford, as you know, and I'm gonna buy myself a copy uh, but more than that, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you so much, Sheila. It's a pleasure to join your show. So, I mean, it's not self-evident to the average person uh, why, what geopolitics means and what they are and why they are important when we consider decarbonization, and critical minerals. Could you perhaps just help us? What do we mean by geopolitics and why should we even concern ourselves with geopolitics? Sure, so the term geopolitics refers to how the geography of a region, and by that I mean especially the physical geography of a region, impacts political decisions and international relations. So clearly extractives are determined by their physical location, uh, the geology of the region. And so there's this kind of a, a natural uh, occurrence of a resource, unlike other kinds of economic activity where like a factory, you could put a factory in any different place, but you cannot just put a mine in any place. You have to put a mine where you have the resource. So minerals have a particular salience for geopolitics because they are geologically determined, unlike other kinds of economic activity, which does not necessarily have to be geologically determined. Mm. So that's why the extractive industries are so crucial for our understanding of geopolitics. So, so what you're saying is that you can't look at mineral endowment and relations between countries uh, without first fundamentally accepting that geology and geography defines those relations because to the extent that certain regions are or are not well endowed, therein lies uh, the basis for their relationship uh, in terms of trade, in terms of uh, politics and in terms of uh, diplomacy. Would that be about Exactly. Right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, those uh, nation states which have some uh, geological resources 
that are needed by other parts of the world, they automatically have greater level of leverage and power. And we are seeing that currently with the Ukraine war that uh, Russia's mineral resources have had an enormous impact in terms of how uh, the international community is responding to um, the level of sanctions, how internal decisions are being made within the European Union around energy supply. Uh, so the, the, the actual location of the resource, whether it's oil and gas or metals, has a huge impact because uh, some parts of the world are disproportionately fortunate uh, while others are disproportionately unfortunate in terms of how much of a particular resource they have. Okay, so I'm going to take a step back because, of course, in the decarbonization uh, space and, and, and geopolitical discourse, this the uh, driving force, at least so far, has been uh, the corps. And uh, it, it does seem regardless of, as you said, the disproportionate mineral endowment, the world has reached a consensus on a way forward uh, with respect to climate change. Am I correct? Or are we seeing, uh, especially as you mentioned, the war in Ukraine and other issues, are we seeing a potential uh, fracturing of what appeared to be COP26 consensus? Yes, I think the Ukraine war has had a huge impact in terms of what uh, commitments can be met with reference to uh, the decarbonization agenda. We have seen uh, regulations that have been passed to fast track, especially natural gas projects, because uh, we need to be able to have uh, supply security in Europe for natural gas before winter. Uh, and uh, for example, Germany just passed a new law which essentially uh, suggests that new LNG terminals will not require a detailed environmental impact assessment because uh, they desperately need to be able to have LNG instead of uh, piped gas from Russia. And uh, now the environmentalists are saying that that means there will be far greater incentive to be dependent on, on natural gas for a longer period of time since there's going to be this investment in the infrastructure. So all of these factors are going to play a role. Uh, I think there were some decisions made uh, earlier on with reference to nuclear power, which have made the fossil fuel dependence greater. I think there was an, a very rash decision by many countries in Europe to phase out nuclear power, existing nuclear power plants, uh, which meant that uh, baseload power, which is the power you cannot currently get from wind and solar and renewable energy because we don't have battery storage infrastructure to provide it. We need either nuclear or fossil fuels essentially to provide it. So they took nuclear out of the equation and hence became more dependent on fossil fuels until we can develop battery storage. And even for battery storage, you need extractives because you need the metals to develop those large battery storage facilities. So I think, unfortunately, the environmentalist community has really put themselves in a corner by being so uh, uncompromising on the, the, uh, the, the, the way forward with the, the energy mix. And so this is where we are at right now. And the decarbonization agenda is going to suffer a blow and it will be delayed because of these decisions. 
That's sad. So, but I mean, presumably the basic premise, uh, because we have the environmental, we have the economic and the, the social, but the basic premise was always sustainable development, which is to say, uh, as we develop natural resources today, we don't do it at the expense of future generations. Presumably this principle is still sound or, or could we go so far as that premise is flawed? Well, I think, uh, you know, we use this term in the United Nations, the future we want. <laughs> now, the, the future we want, and this is a, a term that was coined when the sustainable development agenda was being launched in uh, 2015, particularly. Um, the reality is there is no one future we want. There are multiple possible futures which uh, have different levels of trade-offs. And we need to consider what trade-off society is willing to accept and the speed with which we are going to be able to make those transitions towards sustainability. Um, now, the, the sustainability word itself also implies that there is some one linear path towards a, a kind of an equilibrium future, but you can have many different kinds of future um, scenarios in which humanity could still survive and still have some level of uh, environmental and social, uh, a kind of equilibration, but at the same time, uh, not being the kind of utopian goal that many environmentalists want. So you would still, you know, if you think about science fiction, I often tell my students, you can think about a Blade Runner world, you know, Blade Runner, this famous science fiction novel, which was made into a movie, mm -hmm. you know, that is one future. It's not an ideal future, but it doesn't mean that, uh, that humanity is going to go extinct, you know, so it's, it's a kind of this balancing of what exactly we are able to do with the level of sacrifices we're able to make. So let me see if I understand you. So what you're saying is there are potentially different scenarios, but as we pursue decarbonization, uh, we have uh, zoomed into on one possibility. Yeah. We have now found ourselves in a situation that for reasons, some within our control, but others not uh, within our control, we can't really move at the pace we wanted and potentially not in the direction, the result of which yep. is that we are left with no options. Would that be where you think we are now? Because that, that would be pretty, that's a terrible indictment on environmentalists and uh, yep. the cops, uh, you know, uh, if you wish, advocates. Yeah, I mean, I think the cops were quite naive when they thought that mitigation could be achieved by 193 countries getting consensus on how they're going to reduce emissions when we have so much dependence on fossil fuels, partly because of just the basic natural science of how energy is delivered. And I gave you the examples, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because I want to give that kind of foundational knowledge about what, why do we have certain constraints around the material energy nexus that, you know, the the understanding of basic thermodynamics and how energy is delivered and how materials uh, flow through natural systems, that is something that often is eclipsed by just very shallow knowledge and understanding of environmental systems. And this book tries to provide 
some depth of knowledge, but still be accessible. And um, so essentially what uh, the, these countries made a mistake when they focused so much on emissions reduction and 90% of donor aid until just last year was essentially going towards emissions reduction in climate change. Only 10% was going into adaptation by some measures even less. So we were just banking too much on mitigation given the fact that we do not have a global governance system which would allow for mitigation to really be achieved. So essentially, now what they're saying is we have to focus more on adaptation. And I think there should have been a greater willingness to do that because then we would potentially have had less problems like we are having with um, you know, all these forest fires and the flooding and all these terrible situations we're seeing all over the world. If we had invested in adaptation much earlier, uh, we could have had a, 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 probably a better path forward in terms of making sure human quality of life moving forward in a, in a warmer world could be, uh, it could be more comfortable. So I, I want to come back uh, to your book so you can uh, share your thesis in, in some uh, detail. But first, uh, can you just define for the uh, Sheila Kamek Circuit podcast followers what you mean by adaptation and why adaptation as a principle is a better yes. Uh, approach and a better way to solve in the problems we find ourselves in, please. Yes. So, I mean, I, you know, in climate change discourse, we generally talk about mitigation, which is reducing the emission of greenhouse gases and adaptation, which is that if climate change happens, how do human beings adapt to a warmer world? Which means that if we have sea level rise, how do we, for example, uh, move people away from the coast? How do we develop mechanisms for um, dealing with uh, intense uh, heat in certain locations and having cooling infrastructure, just as we have adapted in cool climates to have warming infrastructure in winters, we would need to do the same for very warm climates now in, the, in uh, summer. So uh, I think that's the adaptation space. The reason why adaptation is currently much more uh, pragmatic as an approach is because mitigation is so difficult to achieve with the kind of global gov governance system we have. We do not have the ability of uh, climate change convention uh, countries to reach a, a, an enforceable agreement in the way where they could actually be held to account. Even when they say that, you know, the um, uh, the uh, Paris Agreement was a binding agreement. The binding part is still very soft. You know, we do not have a mechanism really to enforce environmental treaties in a substantive way. So when that happens, you end up with a very suboptimal outcome, and uh, we will not be able to really keep up with the, the emission reduction targets. And uh, so that's why adaptation is pragmatically a better approach. I can see why mitigation would be a better approach from the point of view of preventing any kind of climate change. But unfortunately, because we don't have a political system that can deliver on that, we have to think about adaptation. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for the listeners, uh, an important uh, reason why uh, your thesis has merit, of course, is that 
the nationally determined commitments, otherwise known as the NDCs themselves, are not legally binding. And, and this is yeah. the instrument by which uh, the world uh, is uh, committing to decarbonization. The very instrument by which sovereign entities commit is one for, over which nobody has looked, uh, legal jurisdiction and cannot be held. And so I think the point you make is very important that you know, while there may be a willingness, while there may be a framework, the truth of the matter is, it's a toothless bulldog. And, 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 yeah. and so if we accept that, then naturally you think, well, maybe I should opt for a different approach. And, and your argument is that, uh, you know, adaptation might be uh, an alternative. But let's assume that you're right. And let, so let's look at adapting. But, but the adapting, doesn't adapting uh, potentially become a defeatist strategy in that yeah. adaptation means that essentially you accept your fate and you become pragmatic yeah. and say, this is my lot. This is where I find myself as humanity in year uh, 2022. And in order for self-preservation, this is what I'm going to do. You are no longer, if you wish, becoming the uh, master and mistress of your own fate. You are really essentially accepting your fate. What if I say that, Salim? And, 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 and yeah. how do we justify simply uh, accepting our fate to the next generation? Yes, I mean, at, at one level, uh, it's a pragmatic uh, recognition that we have failed with our mitigation targets. And uh, the sooner we realize that, I mean, there's a, you know, it's just like when people talk about any kind of uh, an illness, as long as people are in denial, they can't actually find a cure. And so I think if, as long as we continue to be in denial that we have failed, uh, we will keep delaying the opportunity to adapt before we get even more human suffering. So I think right now the conversations are going in two directions. There's one conversation which is saying that we need to find a technical solution to actually reduce the, the, the impact of climate change now through things like solar geoengineering, for example, which is another very drastic approach to adaptation which would basically say, look, we cannot reduce emissions, so let's just reduce the the the, uh, the solar radiation by setting you know chemicals into the atmosphere and uh, and so on. And there's a lot of work being done along along that. I find that more troubling as an adaptive strategy as compared to the conventional adaptation, which is that you build infrastructure on land and deal with where people are living, ways in which they can have more comfortable lives with a warming climate. And um, so I think the conversation is already at that point where there is a recognition that we do need to adapt. My fear is we actually go that route of the solar radiation management, a very drastic geoengineering solutions, which currently like the National Academy of Sciences in the US has recently published a report earlier in this year where they have suggested that uh, there should be research investment in that. Um, and so for me, adaptation is now taking this very drastic turn and we have the opportunity to adapt with much more, more uh, realizable solutions on land and 
figuring those out should be a priority. And yes, indeed, it is a kind of a, an acceptance of defeat, uh, but that's part of uh, living in a world where we do not have the governance mechanisms to deliver on mitigation. Hmm. So I, I th there's a level at which I empathize with your thesis, and, and here is why. What I'm looking at uh, when I, you know, consider how we got to the decarbonization agenda as center stage uh, is that I feel we are tinkering on the edges because we have selected the extractive industries and decided that if we just fix that, everything will be okay. But my sense is that the manner in which we have evolved economically and socially is really the bigger picture. That's where the problem is. Uh, my sense is that, uh, you know, the real issue is that the construct of our own economies and industrialization is the real problem and, and, and our inability to dislodge ourselves. Hmm? For, for whatever reason is the real problem, that if we realize this, we stand a better chance of solving the problem than if we just handpick a few uh, symptoms of how we have evolved and presume that uh, these are the real problems. I wonder when you, in your book, when you say how natural laws define human life, is that what you mean? And if not, what do you mean by that? Yes, so I mean, I think uh, what I am referring to is the certain uh, constraints that uh, the physical world puts forward in terms of the solutions we can come up with. So for example, when people talk about uh, battery technology, you know, we, we want to be able to develop battery storage and they say, well, we will keep coming up with different alternatives. We don't want to use lithium. We want to use some other metal. We don't want to use cobalt or we use uh, some alternatives to cobalt because we're concerned about mining uh, in DRC. What they don't recognize is that battery technology is ultimately constrained by the laws of nature in terms of the physics of how electricity is produced through chemical reactions, right? And mm -hmm. so uh, there, there are, and that's what the book tries to do is to give that foundational knowledge about there are limits to what we can do in terms of technological solutions based on those constraints that the natural world puts forward on us. Uh, and so we should be realistic in terms of how we define our future. I'm not saying that we we are determined completely by nature in terms of what future we uh, are able to have, but we are con confined by parameters, which will be how we, those are the guardrails on which we decide which path we can go on. And that's unfortunately gets missed. Just to continue with the batteries technology, you know, we shouldn't forget that the lead acid battery is still being used, a hundred year old technology, it's still being used now because lead has certain characteristics as a metal, which make it really good for that kind of battery, you know. And so as uh, once we start to consider these kinds of constraints, I think we'll have a much more pragmatic conversation and we would be able to do a, a much more efficient job at delivering 
the kinds of services that will be needed in a changing climate. So and if we see. don't do that, yeah. Yeah, so let me see if I understand. So what you're saying is, we started off by going at galloping speed and determining a solution before first saying, what in the natural world are the limits of what we can do? What are the options? Mm -hmm. and, yep. and how do those options either benefit the direction of travel or how do they constrain it and then work with that? We have just presumed that humans yeah. can just wish and that nature will oblige. Yeah, exactly. And similarly, also on the impact side with uh, emissions and climate change, uh, we, we need to recognize there are tipping points in natural systems. In a, in a complex system, you get emergent phenomena and you get irreversible reactions and you have these kinds of tipping points, which mean that once you start a certain process, then it's very difficult to turn the clock back. So there's mm. certain foundational knowledge which is required for people to understand why that is the case as well. You know, So all of that will, I think, hopefully help the public to make more uh, constructive decisions. So assuming that uh, the penny drops and that Salim is correct, and that the world uh, comes to its senses and we say, you know, he has a point. You know, how in your mind do we start by resetting the button so that our point of departure is one that takes us to where we uh, want to end, given the limitations? Well, I think first of all, for me, the, the starting point is we need to move towards a much more uh, detailed knowledge starting at the um, secondary schooling level, level about what I call environmental literacy. Uh, so in an ideal world, I would want that all children who are going to school, and we, we hope that all children end up at least getting a high school education, right? I don't think everyone needs to have a college education, but a high school education is probably an important goal that we should have. They should have environmental literacy, just like we want people to have basic health literacy. Uh, and what we have is environmental awareness, but we don't have environmental literacy. Awareness is a much shallower term where people have just general idea of what climate change is and so on, but they don't really have a detailed understanding of a lot of these natural phenomena. And that would be a, a big step towards then creating citizens who will later become politicians and have other professions who are able to work within those guardrails. That's one important goal. The other goal is to have a bridge between what, what I'm calling natural order, social economic order and political order through the engagement of the political sphere much more closely with these kinds of efforts. So we need like the role of science advisors and government to be much more direct and much more empowered in that regard. Hmm. This is really very profound. I, I, I'm thinking as you speak about you know, uh, our generation, we spoke of, uh, you know, uh, literacy as in numeric and other forms of uh, literacy. Uh, you are now putting on the table uh, what you call uh, environmental literacy. I have to confess, I never thought of that. But as I listen to you, of course it makes sense. If saving the environment, is centered stage. How can we do it when X billion of people haven't got a clue what we're talking about? How can we achieve it 
if we have a, a generation that is not enlightened enough to not only understand what we're saying, but for as a future, as future politicians, as future business people, if they are not environmentally illiterate, who are we talking to? And, 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 and how do we create a platform for a better future if we continue to churn out the same people as ourselves? It, it seems to me counterintuitive uh, that the cops and others wouldn't recognize this, but instead would ask 40 years, 60 years, 70 year old politicians to come up with NDCs, the nature of which they themselves don't understand. So, so uh, uh, certainly for me, the notion of uh, environmental literacy makes sense. But let's come back to the current uh, discourse. You know, transition to clean energy is of course many things. It's, it's science, it's economics, it's policies of power, et cetera, et cetera. But increasingly, you know, geopolitics of regional power blocks, whether it's the EU, North America, China, Africa, are assuming center stage. Do, when you contemplate this new order, to what degree do you think this geopolitical tension might derail the potential to find the right solution as countries instead fight for political power and political dominance? Yes, I mean, I think this is the challenge is that the environment has always been considered low politics, you know, uh, and high politics of war and peace, as they say, have trumped environmental issues. But one of the other aspects of my work, which I argue in the book, is that the environment actually can be linked to the high politics of war and peace in terms of how it can be operationalized, uh, both to uh, mitigate conflict if it's properly framed, uh, but also uh, as a, a recognition of the fact that we can have a much more efficient economic order if we have a greater recognition of environmental constraints and resource constraints. And so you can make the argument from a purely capitalist perspective also for having that linkage between uh, environmental concerns, environmental order and political order. Um, so for example, you know, uh, the current situation between the US and China, uh, it is likely to lead to very economically inefficient decisions because, uh, because the relationship has soured. It means that the US is trying to find energy security, mineral security, uh, and will need to open new mines or find new sources because they don't want to be dependent on China. They will probably have to develop new smelters or other kinds of infrastructure, which means new energy resources. And they may have to situate them in places which are not necessarily the best for delivering those, but are being done so because of geopolitical factors, um, which have to do with the fact that they're uh, at odds with uh, uh, another country. So. Um, this is where that, you know, the need for that uh, connection between natural and political order is so important. How could we do it? Well, I have argued that we should have, for example, an international agreement on mineral supply, where there is a recognition that minerals are a planetary resource and we should, countries have a right to economically benefit from those minerals, but they should not have a right to use them as political weapons. 
And if we, just like we have under the World Trade Organization, you know, fairly robust, uh, sanctionable uh, kinds of uh, requirements around how free trade is managed. And even China has um, agreed to those um, tenets. And in fact, there was a trade dispute between the, the, uh, the US, Europe and uh, Japan and China, China on the one hand and the EU, uh, Japan and the US on the other about rare earth minerals. You may recall in 2012, 13, there was a big dispute about uh, concerns about supply security of rare earths and using the WTO dispute resolution mechanism, uh, the, uh, there was uh, you know, a ruling where China had to respond uh, to the supply constraint. I think something like that at a much more uh, integrated level around metal sourcing for green technologies, where there is supply security for those metals guaranteed, uh, would be a, a very important way forward. And it's doable. It's not pie in the sky, as I said, with the WTO. We have an example of that at a at another scale. We could definitely do that for others, and that would be a much better outcome than trying to set up these inefficient systems. And hopefully, that would also lead to a rapprochement between these great powers, despite their other differences, which may well continue to exist. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that. Uh... The, the, I'm reminded of the notion of the heritage of mankind. I mean, yes. in a way, that is the, the thesis you are espousing, that we would recognize that in order to save the planet environmentally, we have to rethink uh, the way that we perceive mineral wealth and its value to humanity and not use it as a tool uh, for political uh, dominance. That's basically what you're saying. Now, others may say. Yeah, I mean, and also, I, and, and as you well know, that term is used in the case of uh, seabed minerals in the in under the law of the Sea Convention. The common heritage of mankind is invoked in that way because that's international waters where there is no national sovereignty. I don't see any reason why, if you can have national, uh, you know, common heritage of mankind under the ocean, why there cannot be something at least similar, not identical, in terms of planetary resources being a heritage for all humankind for, for utilization at the national level. That doesn't mean that countries can't have national benefits uh, derived from them, but access should be considered in the same light. Hmm. I, I guess, uh, simply, I mean, the devil is always in the detail, but I can envisage uh, a situation in which Imagine market countries can say, wait a minute, Salim, are you crazy? You know, we have been playing second fiddle to the global north for more than a century. Yeah, we are just as, as uh, say, India, uh, Latin America, Africa, emerging out of the doldrums. And now you're asking that us to come to the table with these same fellows as equals, which by definition means we become disenfranchised. My sense is that though uh, environmentally, that might make sense in terms of how we move forward, uh, in terms of the politics of economics and political survival, my sense is that it'll be a very difficult sell. Uh, uh, as long as the world sees itself uh, in terms of regional blocks, that are competing with each other. So I wonder whether a better starting point is just to do away with these blocks 
And to your point, make environmental stewardship uh, top of the agenda, because as long as political and economic dominance are, to your point, the environment will be the poor cousin of that agenda. Yes, I mean, you know, the regional blocks, it depends how they're operationalized, because at one level, the, inter the regional blocks are creating greater uh, connectivity and they're uh, like the African Union, for example, um, you are getting much greater realization of uh, economies of scale uh, and trade between African countries. And uh, that is leading to decisions within Africa, which are economically more efficient. So in some ways, those regional blocks can be a prototype for what we could have at the uh, international level. I mean, the European Union is an example of that, you know, under the principle of subsidiarity, which is um, the basis of the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, there are certain areas where there's agreement that you will have unified regulations and access. And one of those areas is environmental regulations, right? Where the European Union has unified environmental regulations uh, to a large degree. And um, similarly, with, re with reference to minerals and uh, uh, mineral access, you could have a similar dynamic. That doesn't mean that the benefits are going to be equally distributed. Those countries which have the minerals under their belt, they would still benefit more so. So the countries were concerned about colonial enterprise. In fact, I would say it would reduce those concerns because under an international mechanism like that, there would also then be some uh, obligation for the international community to make sure that uh, there are decent wages, there are you know all those other factors which you would want in a good governance situation are enforced. We currently do not have that. We don't have an international governance mechanism for minerals. Ironically, we have one for seabed minerals, but we don't have it for terrestrial minerals. And for seabed minerals, we haven't even started extracting them. And yet we've set up a governance mechanism uh, at an international level around it. Uh, so I think this is the irony of the situation. And I think there are some nascent organizations which could develop into that. We have the Intergovernmental Forum on Mining Metals and Sustainable Development that the Canadians initiated. And now there are other donor countries involved as well, um, which could blossom into something like that. Right now, it's it's got very little uh, authority, but it has no authority, actually. It's more like an epistemic community for you know sharing knowledge and so on. Um, but that could develop into something like that. There's been talk about creating an international mining agency, similar to the International Energy Agency. But unless it is further empowered, that's likely to not be of much use. It would become like a think tank. Um, so I think we, we have some of these nascent institutions which could be further nurtured and developed into something which is more robust, like the WTO, uh, but focused on mineral delivery. Uh, but right now, uh, we have a long way to go, but it can be done. I mean, what I'm suggesting is not utopian. That's why I've given you the specifics and the details of these organizations. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, to be fair, I think uh, your thesis is one that's really well worth uh, debating many component parts. Uh, but at the same time, as you and I know, people get locked in a, a, a particular line of thought. And it's very like an African or Indian elephant. They can be very difficult to turn around. Be that this may, where we are now is that uh, there's a lot of 
uh, talk and uh, sometimes xenophobia towards China and China's dominance in the critical mineral space. Assuming that uh, the wealth of decarbonization stays as is, how should the United States as the de facto counterforce respond to the current uh, dominance of China in a way that does not distort that global geopolitical balance? Uh, yes, so I think overall, um, in terms of um, where we are at with this uh, geopolitical balance situation, you know, we have the G7 countries, we have the G20 countries, uh, the G20 is, is defined in terms of the size of the economy, so that's the 20 largest economies, uh, and in the case of the G7, it is defined in terms of democratic institutions, um, and I think we need to figure out a way whereby we first of all recognize that there will not be unanimity of political order among countries. That's what makes it very difficult often to reach agreement is because there, there's an agenda that is set around specific forms of government, which it's very difficult to get consensus on uh, at an international level. And um, we, we can start to work towards it, uh, but we, we need to have a, a much more adaptive uh, framework. And I, I have great hope for the G20 that way because the G20, you have countries with many different kinds of political textures who are there. Unfortunately, this current war uh, in Ukraine has uh, made the G20 much-less robust because of, of course, Russia being part of the G20 and uh, the uh, implications of, of um, having negotiations under the G20 umbrella with Russia being there. And we saw that just at the recent uh, summit of, for the G20 leaders. Uh, but I still hold hope that the G20 could be that forum where this kind of a conversation could happen uh, at the high politics level, which is what you were asking about. Um, and then we could maybe use minerals as a focal point um, another aspect which I have suggested if the G7 want to focus on these issues is around energy minerals specifically, and um, there could be uh, at least a recognition that the G7 make their decisions much more based on uh, the, the, the scientific advice around energy delivery. And instead of having this kind of nimbyism, which we have uh, not in my backyard is the, the acronym for NIMBY. Um, and basically you get a consensus around uh, some kind of a science panel that which, which is able to advise the G7 countries on what kinds of uh, energy paths are practical from a scientific point of view for them to follow and then do the planning accordingly. And then that would need to also be translated into national regulations, which would allow for that to take place. Uh, and you could have regulations like eminent domain, for example, which allow for certain kinds of um, privileges for the government to be able to start projects for the greater good of the economy. Uh, that would be very controversial, but we do it all the time. I mean, you have for water infrastructure, cities have eminent domain. If they say they are going to put a pipe through this area, 
you know, even if that's your private property, they can exert eminent domain to do it. So I think there we have precedent in that, but we may need to do the same when it comes to energy delivery, uh, and especially in the G7 countries where there's such excessive litigation that that is sometimes not even very scientifically uh, supported by what is being asked for. So this is these are some ideas of how you would operationalize these changes. Mm, yeah, I think the notion of somewhere between uh, imminent domain and heritage of mankind uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and the need for uh, environmental literacy and the need to turn the global uh, agenda on its head and, and put the environment above politics and economics it lies the answer. It's just how you yes. do it, I think, is the question. Because as long as we're obsessed with uh, political dominance and economic dominance, everything else uh, it can be sacrificed. And I think over the years, it, it has been, among others, the, the social and the physical environment that, that has been uh, uh, sacrificed. But I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be flippant, but I'm mindful that part of why there is this obsession with China is, is the fear that the, there will be a shift in, in global power structure. I, I don't know whether I'm naive, uh, Salim, but I don't know that it is a big deal. Uh, you know, we had the British Empire and, and many other empires before that, and then America became the superpower. And then it might shift to China uh, under the current circumstances. Why is that a big deal? Uh, you know, because I think critical minerals are seen as potentially one of the, the defining uh, issues with the gateways uh, for this. Does it matter in the big scheme of things who dominates? Uh, is the behavior not always the same? Yeah, I mean, I think unfortunately the situation with US and China is that um, there is this clash between uh, visions of both um, uh, political ascendancy, uh, like whether we can have a unipolar or we can have a bipolar world or a uni or we need a unipolar world with one major superpower. Can we have two superpowers? I mean, there's this kind of conversation, which I find very vacuous, really, because that's not really, it's a, it's a kind of a stylized view of the world. Uh, and But that's what holds sway with many of the uh, politicians who often do not display much emotional intelligence uh, when dealing with these issues, it's, but it sells well for domestic political theater. Um, and also we do have to contend with the military industrial complex, which is something that President Eisenhower in his great wisdom, even though he was a military man, he uh, warned us in his last speech that um, there was a real danger that the future trajectory of uh, international politics would get dominated by the military industrial complex. And we do see that. And I'm saying this from an analytical perspective, not with any other kind of uh, persuasion. This can happen also even with other industries. We, we sometimes talk about the climate industrial complex. I think whenever you get vested interests pushing a certain um, kind of rash decision-making where people don't have to do 
a proper analysis to decide on that decision. This is what has happened with the military industrial complex that, you know, the budgets of militaries are not getting the scrutiny. And then you, you create a mechanism whereby this kind of rhetoric gets further traction and you're able to support the same uh, establishments. Uh, so I think you have, we, we need to go back to, I mean, we, we had that hope at, at the, the end of the Cold War where we were going to be able to have a much more um, rational approach to uh, international policy making, uh, but that got eroded by some of these forces that I have mentioned in terms of the, the, uh, the desire to have a vested interest. I think we can go back to that if we get sensible politicians who, uh, and when we have a, a less of an influence from these kinds of forces, but it will, um, it will take a lot of reform of political structures, uh, funding mechanisms for uh, domestic politics, especially in the United States, um, which is, you know, a very expensive place to run political campaigns compared to other countries, my other country of citizenship being Australia, where um, there's a much more transparent kind of system of politics, of uh, funding and much less funding spent on these kinds of issues. So yes, so it's a, it's a complex part of the story in that regard. Yeah, well, um... To be fair, I think, uh, I don't know how people uh, see things, but I think uh, COP27 is going to be pretty interesting because I sort of see COP27 as uh, a, a point in the process of uh, trying to save the environment in which hopefully people will pause and, and look at the events in the last 10 months or so and think, are we on the right path? And, and uh, but if, if folks just press on, I'm afraid I, I fear for the world. And, and so I, I welcome your book, uh, uh, the title, Earthly Order and How Natural Laws Define Human Life. Because I think we really are at an inflection point where we ought to ask ourselves, you know, what, what drives our thinking? And I fear that though, the elements of science are correct. Uh, the motivation and the goal, I'm not sure I buy in. So uh, Salim, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it and have found your uh, thoughts very inspiring, but to be fair, also very timely because I, I, it's very clear the direction of travel is not right. Indeed, yes. Thank you so much, Sheila, for the opportunity.